Welcome to Eurovision Song Context. This is a podcast that tries to get to the bottom of what makes an ESC submission successful. Why do we love the submissions we do? And what do they say about us? It's a tour of taste, identity, and the ins and outs of ESC. It's episode six. I'm Bradley Dalton-Oates, and I'm joined today by Susan Rogers. She's a record producer and recording engineer, most famously for Prince. Yes, including Purple Rain. Other artists she's worked with include David Byrne, Bare Naked Ladies, Gegita, Tricky, and Michael Penn. She also has a degree in behavioral neuroscience. She's most recently co-authored a book called This Is What It Sounds Like, What the Music You Love Says About You. We'll talk about what else? What the Eurovision music you love says about you. Then we'll chat about some iconic Eurovision fan controversies. Amar Pelos Deutsch versus Toy, Toy versus Fuego, Schum versus Stefania, Out of the Embers versus Spaceman, all of the Nul Point from 2021 versus each other. I always encourage you to go to the show page at eurovisionsongcontext.fireside.fm and watch the submissions before we talk about them. This time, though, I also suggest you go to Susan's website, thisiswhatitsoundslike.com, which has interactive tools to help you figure out your own musical fingerprint. You can also probably find the link to it by looking in the podcast description on your device right now. Welcome, Susan. Hi, nice to meet you, Bradley. Thank you for having me on your program. No, no, thank you uh, for coming. So you have just written a book with a co-author. It's called This Is What It Sounds Like, What the Music You Love Says About You. I love this book. I highly suggest everyone go buy it um, now, like this very minute. Uh, You also have a um, website with a lot of kind of interactive tests and things that you can do kind of independent of the book. So congratulations on an amazing book. Thank you. Thank you. It's a book about music listening. I was invited by my co-author, Ogi Ogas, to write a book about music. And I said, well, uh, you don't want me for that because my students know more about music technically than I do. They're formally trained uh, in music theory. And and I'm not. I'm a non-musician. But what I'm an expert in is music listening, having been a recording engineer and a record producer, having been essentially on input my whole musical life. So that's what we aimed to do, is to write about the listening experience rather than the generation experience of creating music, the uh, consumption of it. So this is going to be fun talking about the music that's presented in the Eurovision Song Contest. Yeah, um, I think because your book is so expansive, and for people who haven't read it but are about to read it, There's a lot of science, anthropology, um, it's kind of human development um, in there, which is fascinating. You say in the book that, quote, practically speaking, without a listener, music does not exist. By perceiving, feeling, and reacting to the many dimensions of a song, the listener closes the creative circle and completes the musical experience. I know that this really will resonate with Eurovision fans because the fan experience is um, 
I know I know a lot of people that feel that way. Yes, it's really true. So there's an old philosophical question that asks, if a tree falls in the forest and no one is there to hear it, does it make a sound? There are arguments for yes and no. You can say, well, it, it, uh, it makes a sound because it moves air molecules and sound starts with the movement of air molecules. So you, you can't say, well, don't be such an egotistical person and assume that if you weren't there to witness it, something didn't happen. If a tree falls in the forest, whether you're there or not, yes, it made a sound. And then the others would say, oh, well, I don't know about that, because in order to become a sound, you need a brain. You need a listening brain with ears that can pick up on those variations in the air molecules and interpret it as, oh, wow, a tree just fell over. So <laughs> there are two parts to listening. There's the one who's making the music or the sound, and then there's the one who's receiving the music and the sound. When they work in concert, the listeners, as it is amply demonstrated by the Eurovision Song Contest, listeners' responses to music shape what music is. Of course, musicians out there are going to look at who the winners are, and they're going to say, all right, let, let's do more of that next year. So our mm. listeners shape music, and then music uh, makers will uh, vary their efforts to present different styles to listeners to just to see what works. Yeah, if uh, if anything is a testament to that, it's Eurovision because there's so many <laughs> entries at every spectrum, right? Um, and I like that idea. So in in this you know metaphor, the musician is the tree. Yes, that's a Making that's a really sound. pedestrian, isn't it? <laughs> Making it's true. It's a bit, they've yeah. they've caused something to happen. What is the response yeah, to that okay. event going to be? That's a, an endlessly fascinating topic to me because each. <laughs> Each and every brain is unique, and it's so interesting to think about how similar we all are, and yet there are critical differences between us, which helps to account for the variety in the music we have. Yeah, you said two things in the book which strike me. So one, that there was this idea at some point that there was a kind of normal brain and that there, after that, there were like aberrations, but we we now know this not to be true. Um, and the second thing that was interesting was that you said that our senses, and correct me if I'm wrong, our senses develop differently, right? So you say that um, I might like abstract paintings, mm -hmm. but that might not be my taste in, let's say, um, perfumes, you know, like, or, or, or food, or so all of those senses, um, not only is there not a standard human brain, but there's also within each human brain, the senses develop their tastes, not in tandem at all, right? Each of those things is separate. Did I understand that correctly? That is absolutely correct. I was just reading about this in a wonderful textbook on uh, neural assemblies and brain development. It used to be thought that the normal curve, the normal distribution was pretty ubiquitous in nature, and that's why they call it a normal distribution, a bell curve. But it uh, turns out in biology, no, a, a normal curve is kind of pretty rare because life moves forward based on diversity. You have diversity and you have extremes and you have things that are kind of closer to the middle and things that are far from the middle. The other thing is that the brain is constantly assembling itself in order to make use of information. 
So to the second half of your question, this is what happens when we're young. We're having experiences with entertainment, with food, with fashion, with social events. We have all these experiences and some of them work out well for us and some of them go badly. <laughs> we get embarrassed or we get disappointed or any, any number of responses to engaging with a brand new sort of thing or a new situation. So the pluses and the minuses, the rewards and the punishments are working around up there in our skull to say, okay, next time this thing comes along, I'm going to try that again. But when that thing comes along, I'm going to avoid that thing. So you're becoming customized, your brain is, based on the experiences that you had in your youth. Now, a lot of that depends on chance. Uh, some of us are exposed to some things and, and not exposed to others. We don't have a chance to decide whether or not we like it or dislike it. Maybe we're going to be exposed to it a little bit later in life after we're adults. When that happens, the clay is somewhat hardened. Right. And so we have to kind of put in more effort to learn to like uh, new fashion, let's say, or new foods or um, new music in some cases. Okay. Okay. You teach at Berkeley School of Music. I imagine that being exposed to a wide range when you're young is really, I, I would imagine that most of them, most musicians have had this experience or have they not? Just the exposure when you're young and maybe that resilience of experiencing new things is really important for musicians, yeah? Because you're saying that you get harder as you get old. I realize my point is slightly different than yours. Very true, very true. So when, if we make a living in music, if you're a musician or a record maker or in the business of music, you are rewarded socially and financially for being open-minded about music. You have to keep that clay wet. And keep an open mm. mind as you regard different styles, because this is how you make your living. You're in the arts. Uh, for those who are not professionally involved in music, who just like it as fans, right. they're most likely to bond to music in adolescence, in teens and during our college years. That's when it's critically important to our brains to figure out who we are socially to advertise to the other kids, I'm this type, see me as this. This is who I want you to see me as. And to the young youthful brain, this is shown in fMRI studies, to a youthful brain, your image of yourself is intimately wrapped up in what you believe other people think of you. So it's very convenient to use music to advertise Here's how I want you to see me. I'm the person who likes that hardcore gangster rap. I'm the person who likes classical music. I'm the person who likes folk songs. This is my identity. Once we bond to music like that in our youth, we tend to say, okay, I'm good. I've got a library of music that I personally enjoy very much. I'm good to go. I can go focus on other things. It's, uh, mm. it's some people, however, will, will continue exploring music uh, later in life. The majority don't. <laughs> yeah, there's that old saw about uh, the best breakup song you've ever heard is the one that you heard when you were 16, right? Yeah. After that, you don't need another breakup song. <laughs> yeah. So I would be remiss um, if I didn't cover the fact that you've had a very extensive career with actual musicians, not only an academic career. 
And um, I mean, I, I think you would be better suited to introducing that. Yeah. Like oh. the artists that you've worked with and your experience. As a young person, I grew up in Southern California in Anaheim, to be precise. And uh, I knew like a lot of kids, I was just crazy, crazy about music, loved the radio and spent whatever little bit of money I had on buying 45 singles. And I just loved having music in my life. But I knew that I was not cut out to be a performer or a songwriter. I actually had zero interest in playing an instrument or being a performer that did not appeal to me at all. I loved being on input. Um, So I embarked on a career hoping to become a record maker ultimately, but because I was a woman in a male-dominated profession, profoundly male-dominated, I didn't believe in 1978 that I could be an engineer, much less a producer. So I started my career as an audio technician, repairing consoles and tape machines. I wasn't on sessions, but I was a vital part of studio life. But that uh, ended up being my ticket into record making. In 1983, my favorite artist in the world, who was Prince, uh, put out the word in the professional grapevine that he was looking for a technician. He wanted to hire a technician, and he asked his management, get me someone from New York or L.A., because he really he wanted someone who knew the industry, who knew, who knew the gear well. And I was one of those people. I was a young woman, but I'd been in it for five years, and I knew my stuff. And I knew his stuff, too. I knew his whole catalog. I had seen him in concert several times. I was a huge fan. So I got that gig. And he moved me from the technician role into the engineering role. From that point on, I uh, I worked with him for four years, over four years, and then from there, I including came, including during the Purple Rain. Purple period. Rain, yeah, yeah. I think that's important to, to around mention, the world yeah. in the day, and the Parade album and Sign of the Times. His two albums that are considered masterpieces are Purple Rain and Sign of the Times, and those two albums bookended my time with him. So, I was there during his um, his most fertile period. Then I came back to L.A. and I worked with various artists as an engineer or mixer on some records and a producer on others until I left to go to academia. Okay, including one of my favorite bands, the Bare Naked Ladies. Yeah. Uh, which I have to tell you, um, album stunt, which one week is on, I think at the time was pretty controversial because of the spoken word, because of the kind of like rap lyrics. And I know everybody listening will remember, you know, like mm-hmm. Harrison Ford, I'm getting frantic, like sting, I'm tantric. Like there's this whole spoken word bit. I think that album was not like the other albums and fans that were previously fans were like, oh, they've sold out. Right. This is the album that's not like the others. So I think that was really brave. It was brave of them. And it must have been a brave record to produce. Right. Because you have a fan base and they were trying to become more popular and mainstream. I think that album is still their best selling album. So did you feel any of that risk? I mean, you were talking about being a woman in a male dominated, you know, in this male dominated industry. That's a tough that that song even still today, it is diff- it's different than the others, isn't it? It's, yeah. it's, it's different than, than a lot of things you still hear from that time, right? Right. So this is what a producer does with an artist before you go into the recording studio, is you talk about what your goals are professionally for this record. Whom, with whom do we want to connect? Yeah. And the mandate there with those guys was, um, we'd like to sell some records in the United States. We're very popular <laughs> in Canada, but Canada yeah. has one-tenth the population of the U.S. We'd like to have hits in the U.S. Okay, fair enough. But if we do that, 
that means our rhythm section is going to have to change up just a little bit. Uh, music coming out of the United States is strongly influenced yeah. by its its genesis, which was uh, music from R&B and soul. In yeah. country Appalachian music, that's a certain rhythmic groove. It's different. Music in the Commonwealth of Canada is more strongly influenced by uh, music from the British Isles. Similar but different. Of course, there's lots of cross-pollination, but there's subtle differences there. So we had to make it sound more U.S. and less Canadian. And yeah. having having worked with Prince for all those years... Uh, I, I knew what I could do with uh, with bass and drums to help with that. The other issue that you intuitively pointed out was, you have five white guys from Toronto doing a rap yeah. in 1998. Yeah. We've got to be really careful about that because you don't want to sound like you're mocking or appropriating someone else's style, pretending to be someone you're not. This needs to stay right in your lane. It needs to be a tribute, an homage to a cool style of music. It can't be an imitation. So we had to keep the rhythm very straight, very alternative indie. We had to show that uh, the, the vocal is visiting this other street, but all the rest of us are staying at home base. Uh, and that 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 did work for us. It it, it ended up being the right decision. Uh, still the right decision. Um, I've recently relocated to the United States after um, with my family after twenty years abroad, and so there is a way in which there are artists you don't hear right abroad. You don't. They never made the transition like Dave Matthews, whatever bands from the nineties, Third Eye Blind, indie American music. You just don't hear it overseas, not even in the English speaking world. And so, um, you know, I still hear those songs. I hear those songs now on the radio after 20 years with a complete mm -hmm. hiatus. And that song um, plays and it still is um, fun and relevant and new and um, yeah, very gutsy, I think, considering the other things in that milieu. A fun fact, there's also a great song on that album called Call and Answer. I think those are all I think BNL are really great at relationship songs, complicated relationship songs, specific but not too specific relationship songs. There's a song that they did called Enid, which they based on a diner, a lady who worked in a diner, and her name was Enid, and her name spelled dine backwards. Mm. And they wrote a whole song about her. So there's that, I know there is a bit of that um, thing that I recognize in British culture, that uh, wordplay, that, that bit of fun, like... At any rate, I could go down this hole forever and I'm not going to. I could just get caught down a rabbit hole and never come out. You do mention a number of artists, you know, in the book. Um, I highly suggest, again, reading the book. So Prince, uh, Bare Naked Ladies, Miles Davis. You had an interaction with Miles Davis where you felt like your conversation was 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 a version of jazz improv improvisation, right? So there, that is that idea of a dialogue. So first we talked about that musical dialogue with the tree, you know, like the, like the sound dialogue, like the tree and somebody has to listen mm. to it. And okay. And it's, it's a, it's a cycle, right? It's a circle that has to be closed. Mm -hmm. But in this, in this sense, it wasn't even a musical interaction you had with Miles Davis, but there was that his brain as a, as a musician in a kind of a way. Right. So will yeah. you tell that story, please? Yeah. So I think the year would have been around 1987. I was still Prince's full-time employee as his engineer. And he called me and said, uh, can you come to the house right away? Miles is coming over for dinner and I want to play some tapes. And he gave me a list of four songs he wanted me to pull, pull the tapes. So I did that. Now, Prince had a really nice home studio in the, the ground level 
of his home in Chanhassen, Minnesota, and the dining room was upstairs. So while I was downstairs preparing the studio, I could hear Prince Miles and Prince's dad, John Nelson, who was a jazz pianist around Miles' age. They're upstairs and they're talking and laughing and having dinner. And uh, a few minutes later, Prince came running downstairs and he looked at me and he kind of said in this whispery voice, you won't believe this. Coming, He looked very amused. So coming down the stairs right behind him were Miles Davis and John Nelson. And the two gentlemen were in the middle of this conversation about pants. And they came downstairs into the studio and Miles parked himself right in front of me with his back to me and he's facing John Nelson. And they're talking about whether or not these pants exist because John Nelson is saying to Miles, I like those striped pants that you got. They both kind of talk like this. I like those striped pants. And <laughs> Miles is saying, I don't have striped pants. Yeah, you do. I, I like those striped pants. What striped pants? I don't have striped pants. And John Nelson is saying, I saw you in those striped pants. I saw you. Where'd you see me? I saw you on TV. On TV where? I saw you at the Grammys. They're going back and forth about these pants. And all of a sudden, Miles spins around puts his face right in front of mine, and he says, Yes, I do. They're made out of eel, like in Vietnam. Now, when a guy (laughs) puts his face right in front of yours and says a sentence as strange as that, they're made out of eel, like in Vietnam. (laughs) Yeah. It was so astonishing and so marvelous, and I just held my gaze with him, and I said, Eel, like in Vietnam? And then, bam, he started firing questions at me. Who are you? Where are you from? What do you do? How long you been here? Blah, 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 blah. And he's asking questions, and I'm thinking, dude, if you're trying to intimidate me, you'll have to work a lot harder because I work for that little guy, five-foot-three-inch guy with the high heels and the high hair sitting over there. I don't intimidate that easily. So he's firing the questions, and I'm holding my ground, and I'm firing back. And finally he says, you musician? I said, no, I'm not. And he said, that's okay. Some of the best musicians I know aren't musicians. And he spun back around, and it was over. I hung on to that memory like a precious thing all those Hmm. years and pondered, what did he mean by that? Some of the best musicians I know aren't musicians. I've spoken with a couple of players, Marcus Miller and and others, uh, who had the chance to play with Miles. And they said that sometimes in rehearsal, he'd instruct them, play like non-musicians, which doesn't mean play badly. It means let a universal musicality that belongs to all humans, filter through your hands and your lips and your body, create what others would create if they could. By seeing some of the best musicians I know aren't musicians, it has two meanings. Some of the best players I know can play like non-musicians or think like non-musicians. And it also means some of us who are non-musicians are also very musical. When I thought about the whole conversation, I realized, oh, man, this is one of the greatest jazz musicians who ever lived. And so his mind is interested in call and response. His mind is interested in the rhythm of back and forth. So when he fired off those questions, not moving his body at all, no pauses for politeness, just hanging right there, he's saying... Bam, 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 bam. Here's what I'm giving you. Return it. And I returned every one of those serves, uh, not consciously knowing what I was doing, but instinctively knowing, all right, this is the game we're playing. I'm in. 
Yeah. I mean, I did read the book and there are figures in the book that to me do not seem <laughs> in no part of my brain. Do I think, oh, I'd really like to work with Prince. That sounds very intimidating. Prince <laughs> to me, you know, you might imagine him as an artist, but I don't. I imagine him as a boss <laughs> or as an artistic figure. And Miles Davis is probably like the er example of this, right? Of someone that I, yeah, I think of as very intimidating. I also, um, as we continue talking, the, one of the reasons that I was so excited to talk to you is that I think there is, with Prince specifically, there is such an attachment to his stage style. I mean, mm. I know people who've been to Prince concerts and he was a diminutive man, um, but I have heard that it is transformative to go to a Prince concert. Oh. Right? The, 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 the music is one thing, but the music with, um, with the stage performance is a different thing. Now, I will never experience that because Prince was slightly before my time. Yeah, but um, I, I missed Prince's part of my childhood and not part of my adolescence, right? Mm -hmm. So um, Prince also... I think always sounds new. You know, you know, I don't think you never know what's going to beat time, what's going to sound dated and what's not going to sound dated. And I think uh, I do again, because I've had this hiatus, I now listen to some songs and I think, oh, that sounds quite new. You know, that hasn't aged. And I do think that some of the sounds in Prince, OK, there's like some synth, but I think a lot of it sounds quite new. Now, that's a really interesting thing. And I haven't given it a good think, so to speak, to really try to figure out what makes something timeless. But I do agree with you. And I experienced it just a few months ago. I was, in, I was invited onto a podcast and we were going to have a record poll. A record poll is where you play music for one another and talk about it. And so my host had chosen two songs to play. And those songs were um, Nirvana's Heart Shaped Box. Yeah. Wonderful, wonderful. I love that record. And also Prince's I Could Never Take the Place of Your Man. I know both those records really well. I worked on I Could Never Take the Place of Your Man. But I hadn't heard them in years. So yeah. during this podcast, he played the two tracks. And first he played Heart Shaped Box. And I thought, that's the sound of the 90s, all right. It takes me right back. Boy, do I remember yeah, grunge yeah. and do I remember the 90s. And then he played I Could Never Take the Place of Your Man, which we did in 87. It sounded as if that record could come out today and it would work. Yes. It really yeah. kind of blew my mind. I wasn't anticipating that I'd have that experience with it. Not all of Prince's songs would hold up that well. But I think in part, not saying anything against Nirvana and Kurt Cobain, but Prince was so beautifully unconcerned with singles. He really wasn't chasing singles or pop success. He was such a pure artist who was on such a hot streak that all he wanted to do was make albums. He wanted his albums to sell. And um, because of that, he wasn't heavily influenced by uh, the style of the day. Your book make me think how people don't listen to albums anymore. Um, so many of the artists that you cite, I know, you know, Credence Clearwater, for example, I would know the whole album, right? You, you pull the song off of that and I have a reference point of like nine other songs on the same album, right? The Rolling Stones would be similar, the Beatles for sure the same. And I did think about how people don't listen to albums. To close out the point on aging, there are some songs that also sound futuristic to me, and I wonder whether they'll age well. So you mentioned Billie Eilish, and to me, she sounds like ASMR, like which you also mentioned in your mm -hmm. book. She's so close to the microphone that there's something that sounds, um, I don't want to say 
unnatural. I think it might have to do with, you know, my, it sounds futuristic to me. There's a way in which it sounds ahead and maybe not in a good, maybe in a trendy way. I don't know if that makes sense, but um, there's something about that sound in particular that is, um, she's really close in. Yeah. This has always been the marching orders for those who want to have pop hits. They may not realize it, but the ones who are successful have done this. There is, uh, it's described in the book, there is this bell curve of stimulus complexity which can be applied to music. And there's the, you know, the, the typical bell curve. The middle is pop music. Pop music sells the most, but to the left and the right of the bell curve are styles which don't quite sell a, as much as pop, but they're still popular. On the left side, there's those classic styles that we know really well. Classic rock, classic country, classic disco, whatever. But on the right side is art music, innovative music, music with a higher degree of novelty and boundary pushing than what you Yeah, I think you mentioned King, King Creole. Yeah, yeah. Who, yeah. No, yeah. King, King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. No, okay. Yeah, King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. And, well, I mentioned... Uh, Tennyson, a band from Canada, my love, people who are pushing the boundary. That bell curve is always moving forward, meaning the innovators out there are well aware that they're probably not going to sell a lot of records. But what's going to happen is some pop hit maker is going to pluck one particular attribute of that innovative record and say, now this is an idea whose time has come. I don't know what uh, how Phineas did it and whether he, Phineas O'Connell, uh, Billy yeah, Eilish's yeah, producer Eilish's brother. and brother. I don't yeah. know if he consciously did that or if more likely it was unconscious, but he recognized ASMR as a thing. This is cool. Most pop divas get on the mic and they belt their lungs out. It's time for us to have vocals that do the opposite of belting and that actually just kind of whisper right into your ear. He recognized that, yeah, let me pluck that element, plop it down into more familiar elements, and we have a, a good shot at getting noticed. Yeah, uh, excellent. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so just to close out, because we are going to talk about the seven factors um, involved in your personal musical blueprint, fingerprint, let's say that, mm -hmm. your fingerprint. Y you closed out in the book at the Miles Davis bit saying the act of listening can be every bit as vital as performance. It doesn't happen automatically. Being an active musical listener involves curiosity, effort, and love. It requires embracing your unique identity as a listener. Um, and then you've said that two listeners can listen to the exact same song and report vastly different accounts of what this of this is what it sounds like to me. This reminds me of an Italian phrase that you get a lot. You know, Italian is like a culture based on food, which is another thing that's very human, right? You have to eat three times a day. And um, I don't think there's anything silly or frivolous about basing an entire culture on it. <laughs> but um, sometimes you'll, you know, you'll hear somebody say, oh, do you know how to cook? Or I know how to cook. I'm a chef. I know how to cook. I'm a very good cook. And someone else in the room will say, well, do you know how to eat? Mm. And you'll see, you'll hear somebody say, no, but they don't know how to eat. Interesting. So there is this acceptance that being a consumer there is an art to being a consumer do you understand what i mean like right. there's no point in me there, there's an art to being a consumer and because 
you know, Italians have had all of that, like a range, certainly a regional range of what they get in their own diet. That's a bit what I got out of the miles. Like you knew how to, mm. you're saying, oh, I'm not a musician, you, you know, but you, you, see, you keep saying, oh, I'm an input person. I'm a musical also listener. Take, right. So that also takes a quite a bit of talent, right? Yeah. Um, the the sentence that you referenced uh, is one in which um, my co-author and I probably spent the most time trying to get the wording of just right. He, my co-author wanted, wanted to say that listening was the equivalent of performing. And, and I had to say to him, no, it isn't. And I will be slaughtered if I try to claim that people who listen to music are doing something as intricate, as nuanced, as difficult as performing music. It's not. The word we finally agreed upon was vital. Vita meaning life. Yep. Listening is vital, important, crucial, necessary to the life of music. And that's inarguable, I believe, because if no one listens to it, it doesn't, it doesn't, and propagate and doesn't live. Like you've talked about a record pull. I want to cover that first. We will on in our show notes. So as you talk about the seven factors in your book, you've outlined, you know, here's a record pull that typifies. So if you talk about, let's say rhythm, you've got some records that is kind of sit on either side of the spectrum. We will include those in the show notes, you know, just like the songs that you've mentioned to get to give listeners an idea. I would like to encourage listeners to do their own versions, Eurovision song versions of this, right? So because this is a Eurovision podcast, I'm thinking, oh, what's like the Eurovision version of this? And I encourage um, listeners to like email me and tell me and we'll update the show notes page with like your version and then also maybe the fan Eurovision version of these. Um, but I think first... So you talk about a record pull and this idea, um, I'll get it wrong and then you can get it right, but you, you, this idea of pulling three songs you really like and sharing them with a friend and learning more about the people in your life and their musical tastes through this um, record pull. So the idea is not an academic one. The idea is not to you know, it's not like a music appreciation class where I have to listen to, you know, something I you know, you're, you're learning more about the people in your life. And I thought about doing an album pull, right? Like if I had to do like an album pull, what would I do? And I came up with a short list for myself. It would be Regina Spector, who you talk about in your, in your book, um, who I love, yeah. uh, probably the Ramones, probably Nirvana, probably, uh, Lou Reed, John Cale, Andrew Bird, Manu Chow, Bare Naked Ladies, They Might Be Giants, Alan Lomax. So mm -hmm. I like listening to those original sounds. Um, it, it was an eth ethnomusicologist, not an artist, but his albums are available and probably Caetano Veloso. And wow. that's where I am. So you could take, you could take, you know, that probably... Um, puts me somewhere on this. If, if I were going to pull, a, you know, songs or albums, that's what I'd pull um, for my friends. I can imagine what you'd pull from your with for your friends because you've talked about them. You know, you've <laughs> said that you like the Stones more than the Beatles. This is a thing that um, the Stones appeal to you more than the Beatles. Yeah, uh, your list uh, and my list would kind of overlap quite a bit. I, I love all those artists, every single one you mentioned. So the idea of a record pull is similar to a song pull. Rather than passing a guitar around the room and playing a work in progress, you're passing a record around and you're saying, uh, listen to this record. But your job at a record pull is you must say why this record 
appeals to you so greatly. And you cannot say, well, it just reminds me of this person or it reminds me of this time in my life. It has to be centric to the record itself. Talk about the features on the record that appeal to you and say why. Why that's such an intimate exchange is because when we're listening to the music that we love, this is shown in studies, we go into our own heads only with the music that we love. But when we listen to music we love, we activate a private place in our psyche that is concerned with self-image, self-awareness, self-consciousness. We adopt that music for the length of the record. We adopt that music into our own psyche. So when you then come out of your own head and describe for others why you love a certain record, you're going to say something like, to my body, that rhythm feels spot on perfect. That's how the muscles and bones and fibers in my body like to move. Or you might say, because there's more than one dimension to a record, you might say, those lyrics are my idea of genius. Or you might say, that melody wipes me out, or that harmony. Or it might have something to do with the sounds on the record, the sound design on this record. I just love those guitar tones, or those synth tones. I just love those, those drum sounds. Or it might have something to do with the performances. That singer sang her heart out. Or it might have something to do with just the virtuosity of the performer. Like, this is just unbelievably technically good. Or the style. I admire that they're pushing this boundary. There are a lot of different reasons why our brain can respond to music. And these are all uh, shown to be related to a release of dopamine or opiates in response to listening. That's why most of us have diverse musical taste. So you like some records for their grooves, you like some records for their melodies, you like some records for their style, some records for their performances. Uh, we have a variety of tastes, most of us, because we're getting our mental treats from a variety of aspects of music. Mm. The seven factors which make up one's musical fingerprint are uh, authenticity, realism, novelty, melody, lyrics, rhythm, and timbre. I will repeat them <laughs> because listeners will be going, what? Authenticity, realism, novelty, melody, lyrics, rhythm, and timbre. So you compare the musical elements here in this list to the body and you say melody is the heart and can you go through the rest of the body parts just to make it simple those musical ones simple for people yeah that was the sort of stuff we used to talk about we my colleagues and i in record making so uh you're a producer and uh, an artist has come to you with a brand new song and they're going to play that song for you. They're going to sit down at the piano or pick up an acoustic guitar. They're going to play the chord changes. They're going to sing the words and the melody. So your producer brain is thinking, all right, what's good about it? What is, what is its strongest suit? The main components of a song will be the lyrics, the melody, and the rhythm and then when you decide to make a record out of that song, you're choosing what instruments you're going to use. So that's the timbre. So uh, we talk about melody as being the heart of a record because melodies express feelings 
Music evolved to express feelings. It's really good at it. That's why music is powerful. So melody is the emotion that you're putting out there. Rhythm is the hips of a record. How does your body move from the waist down? Lyrics can be considered music's thoughts. Those are the ideas expressed by the, by the music. So uh, we call lyrics the head of the record. And then, interestingly, timbre, the sound design, is the face of the record because timbre is telling us, what, in part, what style of music this is. If it's a lot of synths and programmed drum machines, it's a more modern record, and often it's a dance record. If it's acoustic instruments or if it's an orchestra, it's typically a different style of music. So timbre is the face. Yeah, you give the example of um, the Nine Inch Nails album Hurt, and then the Johnny Cash version in in the in the sense of voice timbre, right? Not necessarily because instruments have timbre, and okay, uh, but you you give that as an example of voice timbre and how those mm-hmm. um, the original and the cover have completely different feeling, right? Yeah, um, because Johnny Cash's voice sounds like. Uh, very gravelly at that point. That was quite late in his life. Late in his life. That's, um, I'm glad I had those examples to choose from because they're perfect examples. So in the chapter on timbre, I'm talking about the information that we get from the sound source and the subtext of what's going on. Humans are really good at picking up on what's going on with someone based on the sound of their voice. You don't need any special training for this. Humans have evolved to be really sensitive to vocal timbre. So take a given song like Hurt, written by Trent Reznor of Nine Inch Nails. Hurt has a set of words, so it's got its lyrics, it's got a melody, and you can do it at whatever tempo or rhythm you choose. Anyway, Nine Inch Nails did the original version of Hurt, and the opening line sung by Trent Reznor is, I hurt myself today just to feel the pain. Uh, I think I got the second line wrong, but that's the gist of it. And I'm kind of whispering because that's what he does on the microphone. He's getting soft and intimate and his voice is very weak. And he's saying, I hurt myself today. And the subtext is, this is a young man who's in trouble. He's suffering from depression or some maybe thoughts of self-harm. This is, this is not good. But he, he sounds young and he sounds vulnerable. He can probably be helped when that same song is performed by Johnny Cash, an older man near the end of his life, you hear the weight of a life in that voice. And when that adult, older, wiser voice comes on and says, I hurt myself today, it doesn't sound vulnerable. He's telling you the truth of what's going on with him. So you get a very different impression of what he's saying compared to what Trent Reznor is saying. And the only difference there, the words are the same, the difference is in the timbre of their voices and the information that that timbre carries. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, So we have these um, musical factors involved in your fingerprint, your taste fingerprint, your your listener profile. So we've covered those, those are melody, lyrics, rhythm, and timbre. Um, we, and I will get to these, I'm sure, more as we get through Eurovision songs. That's my dream. Mm-hmm. The other three are authenticity, realism, and novelty. These are presented 
I think you have to present them as more binary because you give us two songs in the beginning of each mm-hmm. chapter that are kind of like at the either end of the spectrum. Like certainly there will be something that sits at the middle of the spectrum. Can we just talk about those as binaries, authenticity, realism, and novelty? Right. So I talked about in this book, seven dimensions of a recorded piece of music, each one of which can independently of the others give your brain a treat, meaning a release of dopamine. So the four of them, melody, lyrics, rhythm, and timbre, apply to music, but the other three, authenticity, realism, and novelty, apply to all works of art, to books and films and artworks in general. So authenticity is something we talk about in the recording studio. It has to do with your subjective impression of where you think these performance gestures are coming from. Is that singer singing her heart out? Or Mm. is the performance that you hear the product of genius... Are yeah, you, you mentioned Bach. To, yes, Bach, Bach. Bach is at one, is right. at one or, end or, of this. Or yeah. an orchestra that's performing Beethoven or, or, or Ella Fitzgerald, a virtuoso singer. So we talk about above the neck versus below the neck. Do you prefer your music to show off that cerebral knowledge and technique? Or are you more inclined to gravitate toward music that is raw and heartfelt and maybe kind of sloppily performed but it feels like it's coming from the gut or from the heart. We all tend to have a sweet spot on this axis where music feels most right to us. Yeah, you call the other end of this um, naive. And I have heard this applied to the visual arts, meaning an artist that wasn't technically trained, right? Like maybe an indigenous artist, you, you know, I've heard this called naive. Okay, so you've got your authenticity, then your realism. Can we talk about the the duality there? This uh, rocked my world. In 2017, I read the book by Eric Kandel, who's a Nobel laureate. He won his his Nobel for his work in physiology and medicine. And he wrote a little book that I highly recommend. It's called Reductionism in Art and Brain Science. He's a brain scientist, but he's talking about painting and, and art and how we went from in the 18... In the early 1800s, how painters went from capturing reality with their technique, capturing reality, to abstraction. What happened was a new technology came along in the 1840s, and that new technology was the camera. When people saw photographs, they realized, okay, way to go. Now, rather than having my family sit for a week while their portrait is painted, I can just have a photographer come and capture them in an instant. So painters were now free to, instead of capturing the world as it looked, the reality of, of, of a visual scene, they could capture what the world felt like. And so from the mid-1800s on, paintings started to become more and more abstract, just expressions of of what things feel like rather than what they look like. And it rocked my world, this book did, because the same thing happened in music in the late 1990s. Engineers of my generation, what we valued was our ability to capture reality, to place microphones, to choose musical instruments, to create with our technique and our skill and our knowledge, a sonic picture of what happened in the recording studio. That was the goal until the personal computer came along 
and sample libraries came along. And now all of a sudden, with the click of a mouse, you've got a whole set of instruments. You didn't have to work that hard to get it. All you had to do was click that mouse. Now music can move away from reality capturing and into an era of abstraction. What abstraction means is expressing an idea with component parts that don't necessarily individually reflect that idea. Like a gesture sketch in painting. Uh, Jean Cocteau can do a line and that line is a bull. It's just a, it's just a curve, yeah, it's like a line. Hey, Eurovision Song Context listeners. For technical reasons, as usual, we've had to split this episode into two. Carry on to the next episode to continue listening to my conversation with Susan Rogers. Mm-hmm.